Well, let's spend a moment in prayer and then we'll turn our eyes to the scriptures in Matthew 6. Our Father, we come to you now having sung some truly glorious hymns, having expressed glorious truths in the midst of this congregation of people who love Christ, who have been called by Him to serve Him forever. And for that, we are deeply and richly thankful. I pray that our time in Your Word this morning would be so encouraging to our hearts as we look at one of the most comforting passages, I believe, in all of Scripture. Speak to us, Lord, in our times of anxiety, our times of discontent, and show us the way of following Christ with joy and contentment. We pray in His name. Amen. So turn with me to Matthew 6, 6.25, and we'll finish Matthew 6. This morning we're coming to the final message in our series, How to Pray in Power. And today we're considering the power of contentment in prayer. I think this is a, a great timing to talk about this subject on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Now the connection to prayer isn't going to seem readily apparent to you at first, but by the time we're done, what you're going to see is that this final section in Matthew 6 is actually an extended commentary on prayer. But I'll take some time to get to that. For me personally, Matthew 6, 25 through 34 is one of the most delightful passages of Scripture that I personally have really hung on to for many, many years. It's comforting. It's tender. It's encouraging. It's a passage that gives you the sense of God putting His arm around you. It gives you the sense in very poetic and beautiful terms, that you can relax, that you can stop worrying about the essentials of life. I need this sermon. You need this sermon. It is a delightful passage. I have the joy of spending my time reading many, many very brilliant men. It's interesting to me, though, that in my reading and preparation, the, the scholars and the brilliant men that I like to read, when they get to Matthew 6, 25 through 34, they almost turn childlike. They, they, they stop with the big words and they stop with the complex uh, uh, explanations and there's just this sense of awe and wonder and childlike delight and relief. It contains simple images that everyone can relate to, birds and flowers and food and clothing and yet this short section in the Sermon on the Mount is a masterpiece of literary genius. It's a masterpiece of pastoral care. It's a masterpiece of perfect logic. And it's a masterpiece of kingdom theology. It, it contains simultaneously an air of gentleness and comfort. And yet it's embedded with commands, with imperatives concerning the priorities of the genuine citizen of the kingdom that those who have exercised saving faith in Christ, those who have trusted Him as Lord and Savior, as Master and Redeemer, you will find this passage comforting. You will also find it compelling. You will find it convicting. And it's all of that rolled into one. It's lovely in its tenderness, and yet it's challenging in its very high standards concerning discipleship, truly following Christ. 
This section deals with the subject of anxiety and contentment. It relates directly to the lifestyle, the conduct, the behavior of the true follower of Christ. It deals with what one scholar called the impropriety of anxiety in the true disciple. I'm going to read the first section of this through verse 30, and we'll get to verses 31 through 34 in a bit. Matthew six twenty-five. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? I'd like to present this text in two parts this morning. First of all, I just want to take a a few moments to walk through the text with some basic explanations so you kind of have a foundation. But second, and we'll spend most of our time on this, I want to derive four principles of contentment from what we learn. And the last principle is going to bring us full circle to how directly related to prayer this text actually is. So first, let's just walk through the text with some basic explanations to, to give you a foundation, a beginning point for the principles about contentment we'll get to. In verse 25, Jesus begins, for this reason. What is he referring to? He's referring to what he just asserted in verses 19 through 24. And you recall the three related but independent lessons that we looked at, which all center on storing up treasure in heaven and not trying to serve two masters, God and money. And so Jesus says to not be worried about your life And he represents life with the very most basic things of life. They're represented by the examples of what you eat, what you drink, or what you wear. Those are the basic things of life. Now, practically speaking, since those are just examples, we can can add to it. We could certainly add to how you make a living. What house will you live in? Uh, for, For younger people, who will you marry? For older people, how will you live out your final years? How is your week going to go? You can fill in all the blanks about the basics of life. Jesus takes this worry down to the very most base level, actual survival. Actual survival. And this is really a stunning statement in verse 25 for him to say, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, nor for your body, what you will put on. Because to most of the people that he's preaching, they did live a day-to-day existence. They lived a, a, a day labor living where what you worked for that day might feed your family that night. There was no sense of, well, it's a good thing I have a, a savings account or anything like that. In fact, in extra-biblical literature, 
literature outside the Bible in New Testament times, this particular word for worried is associated with sleeplessness. That I'm sleepless over the basic things of life. I don't know where my food will come from tomorrow and I can't sleep because of worry. Being so overwrought with anxiety that now you can't even get that basic need of rest. In verse 26, Jesus explains that God, he calls him your heavenly father, is directly responsible for feeding the birds. They don't plant food. They don't harvest food. They don't have a savings plan for their food. And what Jesus is doing here is he's giving an illustration of the absurdity or the ridiculousness, the irrational nature of having anxiety over basic survival. And it's irrational. In verse 27, Jesus pictures the length of your life and he asks, who can add one cubit? Who can add this much to your life? And it's a, it's a silly picture. Who can add a minute to your life? It's like him saying, you know, I understand that if you just worry your way for 80 years, you might live an extra year. If you worry all the time, you might live an extra month. He says, no, you can't even add that much. So why waste your time? Why be the person that gets to the last moments of their life and goes, phew, I made it. I worried my way all the way here. In verses 25 through 27, we just saw these. Jesus asks three rhetorical questions, questions to make you think, in which the answer is obvious. Verse 25, the question is, is not life more than food? In verse 26, the question is, are you not worth more than the birds of the air? And in verse 27, who of you by being worried can add to your life? Well, let's answer those questions. Verse 25, is not life more than food? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. That if God is the source of life, and I want you to think about that. Don't let that pass. He's the source of life. There is no other being that is the source of life. He is the source of life. It stands to reason that he's also the source of the smaller things which sustain life. That's a clear answer. The question in verse 26, are you not worth more than the birds of the air? This is a, an opposite argument. This is an, op- an argument from the lesser to the greater. That if God feeds the birds of the air, how much more is he going to provide for kingdom citizens made in his image? And in the verse 27, who of you by being worried can add to your life? The Hebrews believed both culturally and from Scripture in the sovereignty of God over both life and death. In other words, they believed there was a predetermined time of death. And so he's challenging them. Live what you already believe. You already believe this, now live it. They already believed, Psalm 139, 16, that your eyes have seen my unshaped substance And in your book, all of them were written, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Then the verses 28 through 30, Jesus moves on to the example of the basics of clothing. He gives the example of the lilies of the field. Now, lilies would be a word used fairly non-specifically. We could just say flowers, the wild flowers. And he says, look at them. And he says they don't toil or spin. This is speaking of making clothing. That there's no, no flower that, that has to work to become colorful and beautiful. And his, his example is that even Solomon wasn't clothed as beautifully as even one flower. 
Now, that's fairly significant. 1 Kings 3.13 says that Solomon possessed more wealth than any king on earth, which means at that time he possessed more wealth than any person on earth. What does that mean? It means his closets were bigger than everybody's. He had more clothes. He had more access to the, to the most glorious clothing and cloth and garments on the planet at the time. And Jesus said, no comparison. The lily beats him every day. In verse 30, Jesus asks another penetrating question. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? The logic is obvious. If God clothes, as it were, that which blooms and is cut down and thrown into the fire for fuel, how much more will he care for those that he has redeemed? By the way, at this point, uh, Jesus has covered all areas of working to provide for yourself. He's covered the things traditionally that men do. Verse 26, sowing, reaping, gathering in the barns. And he's covered traditionally the things that the women do. In verse 28, spinning and toiling, making of clothing. He's saying all are cared for. There's no category of person who's a kingdom citizen that God won't care for. Now, in verse 31, we get a summary statement. It summarizes verses 25 through 30. Verse 31, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? That's a summary. And so with great comfort, with great encouragement, he tells those that follow God through Christ that their needs are already known. Verse 32, for all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. That instead of wringing your hands with worry about the basic things of life, verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This is the whole point of the section. This is the the climactic moment that Jesus is aiming for that true disciples of Christ concern themselves with kingdom and righteousness and God will concern himself with providing for his disciples, for his people. And in a moment of exaggeration and perhaps even humor, Jesus animates the idea of worry into a person. And the person is called tomorrow. Meaning the concerns of what may happen after today. And he says, tomorrow is a person to be ignored. Verse 34, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day is enough trouble of its own. In other words, let old tomorrow worry about himself. You don't need to concern yourself. We could close in prayer right now. And that's so encouraging. It's so warming and so delightful. For me personally, you can sense the warmth and the care and the pastoral tone. In this, you can imagine the smile of Jesus teaching these people so very eager to know how they fit into God's plan when for many of them just day-to-day survival was a very apparent reality, very real concern. I'd like to dive a little more deeply into this and I'd like to derive four principles about contentment from what we learned and the last principle will bring us full circle to how directly related to prayer this text really is. The first principle, contentment resists practical atheism. Contentment resists practical atheism. 
Verse 32. For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And when Jesus refers to Gentiles here, he's not making so much the distinction between Jew and non-Jew. He's making a distinction between those who follow God faithfully and those who do not follow God faithfully. He's simply using a term that would be very accessible to them. But the illustration here is helpful. Gentile worshipers of pagan gods were in constant anxiety. They were in constant anxiety over whether or not their offerings and sacrifices had appeased their gods or not. They were, they were constantly anxious. You know, it was said of Alexander the Great that one of his motivations for literally trying to conquer the whole world was that he could rest easy knowing that he literally had more to give to his gods than anybody on earth. In Acts 14, when Paul healed a lame man in the city of Lystra, the, the crowds proclaimed that the gods had come, come among them. that They had become men. So they started calling Barnabas Zeus and started calling Paul Hermes. And you recall that Barnabas and, and Paul were tearing their clothes saying, no, don't do that. But when the priest of the temple of Zeus heard of this, for him, this was the chance of a lifetime. He brought all kinds of sacrifices to offer to Paul and to Barnabas, thinking this is Zeus and Hermes. Now, why was he so eager? Why was he so eager? There was no love. There was no affection for the false gods. Just a desire to appease, to keep their wrath away. And this priest thought he was going to get way ahead of the game, that if the gods were appearing personally, he was going to roll out the red carpet and really make some points. But Jesus says that the followers of the one true living God don't live like that. In fact, followers of Christ are not to live like that. Because even pagans can worry themselves to death about food and about clothing. In fact, in similar fashion, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 47, that loving only your friends is unacceptable. Because even pagans do that. And so... To be anxious about your life all the way to the end. Even unbelievers do that. Habitual worry is practical atheism. It's living as if God doesn't exist. It's living as if he's not your heavenly father. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Fathers and mothers. Imagine walking with your, let's call him seven. Seven year old child. You're going down the street in your own neighborhood. You're just taking a nice little evening stroll. Your house is so close, you could turn around, throw a pebble, and hit your front door. You both have your phones on you. You're carrying some money. You don't have a worry in the world. You're just enjoying the nice, cool dusk at the end of the day. It's peaceful. It's serene. And the whole time, this little boy keeps looking back to make sure he can see the house, and then the comments start. Oh, I hope we make it back home. How's the charge on your cell phone, Mom? How much cash are you carrying? Dad, do you have a backup credit card? Are your life insurance policies updated? There's a chihuahua a few doors down, kind of scared of that thing. I thought I saw a snake. What's the deductible on our health insurance, and can you handle that? I may be having tunnel vision. My my blood sugar's low. Did we eat enough dinner to make it back? My jeans are almost a month old. Are they going to fall apart before we get back home? 
My mouth feels dry. I only had 32 ounces of water at dinner. I think my allergies are going to act up. Have you checked the air quality today? And and listen, I I don't mean to ask, but if you and mom suddenly get dementia in the next five minutes, how am I getting home? Do you know our neighbors? How do you know we're not walking by some fruitcake's house? Are all these security cameras recording us? And where does it go? Is the FBI listening to this conversation? And why, oh why, can't we have the good mosquito repellent back? And is your retirement plan going to keep me from supporting you if we don't make it back home? It's ridiculous, isn't it? The kid's acting like his parents are completely inept and unable to care for him. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying about us. Oh, what if I don't have enough food? What if I don't have enough water? What if I have to wear my, my comforter because all my clothes disappeared? Those are the questions that pagans ask because they have false gods who couldn't care less about them even if they were alive. But not citizens of Christ's kingdom. You have a heavenly father and fathers provide for their own. And he knows that you need all these things. The first principle, contentment resists practical atheism. The second principle, contentment responds to direct commands. Contentment responds to direct commands. This section is more than just pastoral comfort, more than consolation, more than reassurance to the soul. It is part of covenant obedience. There are several types of Greek verbs in this passage, and some of them appear the same in our English translation. But I want to focus on two verbs that really form the primary verbs, the primary uh, uh, action words here, because they're commands, they're imperatives to covenant kingdom citizens. The first command is in verse 25. Do not be worried about your life. Be worried. It means to meditate on, to be weighed down with, to be encumbered with, to be anxious about. Jesus said, concerning the basics of life, do not be worried. Now, if you know your Bible, you might be guessing that this is exactly the same verb that the Apostle Paul uses to command in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, or do not be anxious, depending on your translation. And the second command comes near the end of the section in verse 33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is so often taught, so often written about, or preached as a formula and a recipe to get God to give you things that if you'll seek first his kingdom and if you'll seek righteousness, then he'll add all these things to you. Wrong, 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 wrong. Five times over. If you're a child of the living God, the text is very clear. God is already giving these things to you. He's already providing for you. Not one Christian will get to heaven having starved to death. And God says, I would have fed you, but you were being a real jerk for the last couple of days. It's the other way around. That in light of the fact that all these things are already being added to you and will be added to you in the future, seek first the kingdom of God and seek first his righteousness. I'm going to come back to this, but just keep in mind that verse 33 is not a how to get extra blessings from God formula. It's a command of your master to you as a slave that you are to seek first the things that he tells you to seek first. 
The first principle, contentment resists practical atheism. The second principle, contentment responds to direct commands. The third principle, contentment refuses forbidden questions. Contentment refuses forbidden questions. Verse 31. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? This verb, do not worry, it's the same root word as the command in verse 25, but it's a different verb form. It's a verb form called a subjunctive, and it can ask questions, it can provide a wish of some kind. Generally, it's a verb that means, I hope that something happens. This particular version, and I'll tell you why I'm telling you, is called a deliberative subjunctive, and you can hear the word deliberate. It's deliberating like a a jury deliberates. In other words, it asks questions. This is very instructive because I just read the questions that Jesus gives as an example. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Jesus is giving the definition of sinful worry. It is asking forbidden questions. He says, do not ask these questions. What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? That these are questions that should never be asked because they imply that God may or may not be caring for you, may or may not be able to come through for you. I suppose this is as good a place as any to mention this. This admonition against forbidden questions, questions which are an offense to God, this doesn't mean that food and drink and the basic necessities of life come without working, come without planning. This is not an excuse for laziness. But within the context of doing all that you can to be responsible, in the context of work and planning and forethought, God provides. It is reasonable to ask the Lord, would you bless the work of my hands? It is unreasonable to say, oh no, what am I going to eat? Let me take this idea of forbidden questions to kind of a different plane of thinking. The one who is constantly asking these questions actually has a skewed view of what it means to be a Christian, a a crooked view. It's a me-centered view of faith in Christ that God exists, that my salvation exists so that I can get stuff, so that God can take care of me, so that my life will have purpose. I grow so weary of hearing gospel presentations that say, do you want to discover God's purpose for your life, then come to faith in Christ. It is not about God's purpose for your life. God's purpose for your life is to be a living sacrifice. We already know that. Salvation is about receiving the gift of the the atonement given by Christ. The me-centered view of faith says that my faith is all about what God is going to do for me, the purposes in my life, how he's going to help me. Let me use a radical example if that's the point of being a christian that god is going to do marvelous glorious things for you that he's always going to have these these blessings all over the place if that's the point of being a christian you know who the most inept christian of all time was the apostle paul apparently paul was so inept had so little faith was so incompetent so hopeless so bungling that god didn't even provide these basics to him at times Listen to Paul's apparently ridiculous Christian life from 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes less one, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. 
I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among the false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship, many sleepless nights in starvation and thirst, often hungry and cold and without enough clothing. Wait a minute. Jesus just said, your father knows you need these things. Yes, until his purpose for you on this earth is finished. You see, God had already ordained the purpose of Paul's life. Right after confronting Paul on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus told Ananias of Damascus about Paul. In Acts 9, he said, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, what's the point of this? Don't make the mistake of thinking that God's provision for you is based on your standards. It's based on his standards. He will provide for you everything that you need. And your first priority is not getting stuff from God. Your first priority is is that you're his slave. God is your master. He will provide exactly what you need for your part in his kingdom work. You're a slave and also a son or a daughter. God is doubly obligated to himself to you as your master, the one who bought you with the blood of his son, and as your father, the one who has adopted you into his family. This naturally brings us to the fourth principle. Our fourth principle is contentment reflects right priorities. Contentment reflects right priorities. And this is the whole point of everything today. The climactic point of this section, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We've been given the command. We've already seen that, to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Let's talk about seeking God's kingdom, first of all. I think it's way too easy to gloss over this and and make this somehow an idea of having thoughts about the kingdom. Okay, I thought about the kingdom today. I've sought first the kingdom. Or symbolically believing in in kingdom ideals. But remember the context of Matthew's gospel. The gospel of Matthew has as its central focus the future coming of the kingdom of Christ on earth. That's the focus of the gospel. The real-time offer of that kingdom while Christ ministered happened, but... He was rejected and therefore the kingdom is delayed until the second coming. But what does it mean to seek? This Greek word has a wide range of possible nuances depending on the context. But this particular use of seek in Matthew 6.33 falls into this category. And I'm quoting from really the gold standard of biblical word usage, the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. This is the category. Quote, To devote serious effort to realize one's desire or objective, strive for, aim at, try to obtain, desire, wish for. Let me narrow that down. The main emphasis is on making efforts, striving for, aiming at, trying to obtain. These are actions. This goes far beyond just a mental attitude or a spiritual disposition that you like kingdom ideas or you think about the kingdom. This seeking is doing something. So how do you seek the kingdom in terms of efforts, striving for, aiming at, trying to obtain? Well, what's your duty in regard to the kingdom? 
Your duty is to be the light to a darkened world and the salt to a flavorless world that needs the gospel. This means being able to answer the question, what part, what even small part or seemingly insignificant part am I personally playing to further the work of the kingdom? How am I, with actions, seeking the kingdom? This goes far beyond seeing your relationship with God as getting stuff from God, doesn't it? This goes way beyond that. Now the focus becomes clearer that the purpose of God giving you stuff is so that you can serve His kingdom purposes. That kingdom purposes are now the center of your life and, and existence. And listen, this is not an add-on. This is not a parenthesis. This is a parallel. You're commanded to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Those two go together. This is not the seeking of the righteousness of salvation. That's, that's erroneous to say that. This is not talking about your salvation. Such as 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's salvation. That's not what Jesus is speaking of here. This is more along the lines of what the Apostle Paul calls the breastplate of righteousness in the armor of God in Ephesians 6.14. That is the active participation in covenant obedience to the law of Christ. Seeking righteousness, obeying the law of Christ, obeying the New Testament, obeying the commands of the apostles and of the Savior. And so Christ commands that you seek. Remember, it means to make efforts, to strive for, to aim at, to try to obtain first the furthering of God's kingdom plan by participating in the bringing in of kingdom citizens and secondly, the act of obedience to the law of Christ is revealed in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, these things go together. They go together. In fact, I want to show you a, a, a glorious example of this. Take a moment and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I want to demonstrate that these side-by-side ideas of furthering Christ's kingdom plan and active obedience to your master is really jumping off the pages of Paul's letter to this young church in Thessalonica. Let's start with the category of seeking God's kingdom. Now that you know what that is, it's, it's active, it's, it's making efforts, it's striving for, there's a focus on this as the top priority. Seeking God's kingdom. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. Chapter 1, verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also suffered the same things at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. They're suffering for the gospel. The church is not just a building on the corner that they show up to. They're suffering for the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. This is the Apostle Paul in very fatherly fashion saying, we're proud of you if you stand firm for the work of the gospel. Stand firm for the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 11. 
He says to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Here's the reason. So that you will walk properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. This is a concern for your Christian witness. That you're able to, to witness the gospel to the world because you're living in a way that has integrity. Chapter 5, verse 12. Concern for kingdom as lived out in the church. Chapter 5, verse 12, But we ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and that you regard them very highly in love because of what? Their work. And how can you best serve the shepherds among you? Live in peace with one another. It's concern for the kingdom which drives unity, drives humility, drives obedience to the church. That's seeking first the kingdom. How about seeking God's righteousness? Go back to chapter 3. Seeking God's righteousness. And these just happen right next to each other. Chapter 3, verse 12, right near the end of the chapter. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And then Paul gets specific in verse 3 of chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 7, for God did not call us to impurity, but in sanctification. Verse 9, now concerning love of the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brothers who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to excel still more. Chapter 5, verse 14. Seeking God's righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you. In Christ Jesus, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but examine all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And just as a bonus, just to make sure Paul makes his point, sprinkled throughout the letter is a direct connection between the coming kingdom and righteousness right now. In fact, we'll just go backwards to make this easier. Chapter 5, verse 23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, righteousness, and may your soul, your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Kingdom. Go back to chapter 3, verse 13. That he may strengthen your hearts blameless in holiness. There's righteousness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. There's kingdom. Go back to chapter 2, verse 12. So that you would walk in the manner worthy of the God who calls you, righteousness, into his own kingdom and glory. Kingdom. How about chapter 1, verse 9? Chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of an entrance we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, righteousness, and await for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come, kingdom. Contentment reflects right priorities. 
The Christian who's actively participating in God's kingdom work and actively obeying the law of Christ is less and less concerned and in fact is commanded to not be concerned at all about the stuff you need to live in this life. Let's go back to Matthew 6 together. Some of you may be asking, now wait a minute, what about the fact that Paul literally went hungry, literally was thirsty, and literally didn't have adequate clothing? I know a lot of people hate the word literally, but in, case, in this case, it's true. What about the fact that earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said you'll be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. You'll suffer. You'll be insulted. You'll be reviled. The Apostle Paul says that all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. And what about the fact that historically for 20 centuries, Christians have been beaten and starved and naked and abused and murdered for the cause of Christ? Well, this is where we're elevated beyond the realm of this present life and into the next. God will provide everything you need to seek first his kingdom, to seek first his righteousness, while you have complete confidence that total and full provision, total and full supply is ultimately met in the coming age. You will have everything you need on this earth until the moment that your time on this earth closes out. Everything. Did you know that every one of you will make it to your last meal? Every one of you will. I told you earlier I'd make the connection to prayer. That connection's probably being drawn in your own minds already. Matthew 6, 25 through 34 is basically an extended commentary and explanation of the disciples' prayer. Look with me at verse 9 of Matthew 6. What did Jesus say? Seek first his kingdom. Matthew 6, 9, prayed in in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. I can't help going back to King James. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And all these things will be added to you. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. As some have said with a wink, you seek the kingdom and his righteousness and the bread is sandwiched in between. It's right there. Seek first his kingdom, seek his righteousness and right in between all the daily bread you need. Now the title of this message is The Power of Contentment in Prayer. Remember the four principles. Contentment resists practical atheism. Contentment responds to direct commands. Contentment refuses forbidden questions. Contentment reflects right priorities. The power of contentment in prayer says that you're praying first for kingdom concerns and for your own obedience to Christ as his slave and as a citizen of his coming kingdom. And then you're praying for your own needs to a much lesser degree. I want to ask your indulgence because this this text is so central to the Christian life. I'd like to take another few moments and give you two applications. 
And, and I honestly cannot overemphasize how important these are. The first one is longer and the, the second one is a little easier. The first application, this text contains the answer to every sinful form of anxiety. This text contains the answer to every sinful form of anxiety. Now, why do I make a distinction, sinful form of anxiety? If you accidentally walk in front of a car that zooms by you six inches past you at at 100 miles an hour, your heart's going to be racing. You will have the physical symptoms of anxiety. That's not a sinful form. That's your body doing that. But this text contains the answers to every form of sinful anxiety. Anxiety over basic life needs or really over almost anything shows itself in so many ways. It manifests itself. It can show itself in a habitual sharp tongue to those who are around you because you're not content and your lack of contentment spills out negatively to those all around you. It can show itself in the idolatrous pursuit of wealth as we saw last time in verses 19 through 24 because that's the only way you'll, you'll be provided security. I've sat with professing Christians who have more money than I'll have in 10 lifetimes, literally trembling in fear that they won't have enough. It can show itself in the desperate need to control others, to control your environment to such a degree so that you can feel content and get rid of this anxiety. It can show itself in a never-ending quest for emotional comfort and ease and good feelings, avoiding all emotionally uncomfortable situations. It can show itself in sexual immorality in which a a quick fix of an emotional relief is sought only to be followed by guilt and self-condemnation and repeated over and over again. It can show itself in drunkenness. By the way, there's no disease called alcoholism. There's only disobedient drunkenness. It can show itself in any and every form of idolatry in which you must have something or some experience in order to momentarily relieve anxiety or disappointment or fear of some kind. But Jesus has given you the answer to all of that. And it's not necessarily a direct answer such as focusing intently on that particular form of idolatry which you may use to create a momentary good feeling. No, the answer is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek his kingdom. What does that mean? Okay, I'm dealing with this form of anxiety over here. Seeking first his kingdom means you're going to sit down and prayerfully make a plan to fill your life with kingdom tasks. To be able to talk for half an hour spontaneously about what you're doing for the kingdom of Christ. What you're giving how you're serving in the church, how you're spreading the gospel to those around you, how you're loving and cherishing the body of Christ, how you're being light, how you're being salt. And this plan is reflected in how you spend your time, how you spend your resources. Listen, the more you elevate your kingdom participation, the less anxiety over the basics of life you'll have. You won't have time to be anxious. And then you seek His righteousness. You sit down, you identify the areas of disobedience or spiritual weakness, and you say, okay, it's time to actually deal with this. Things you've been spiritually toying with or avoiding, and you make a plan of attack to attack these things with prayer, with the word of God, with accountability, the brothers and sisters, to fill in your life with the body of Christ. You identify with brutally honest self-evaluation What idols persist in your life? What things you think you must have or must avoid in order to feed that sinful need? And now, whatever form of anxiety 
Your practicing and cherishing becomes less and less important to you. becomes more of a non-issue. Why? Because you're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And as a result, you're obeying the command, do not be anxious. Honestly, I believe that biblical counseling for every issue can be boiled down to two homework assignments. No matter what the issue is. Number one, reorder your life to be consumed with kingdom things. Reorder your life. And number two, aggressively pursue at a highly elevated level your own sanctification. Radical ideas such as asking your spouse for input, such as scripture memory, such as times of prayer and fasting, then I believe whatever the original presenting issue or problem is will slowly be relegated to a category of just not that big a deal anymore. Here's a second application. This is simple. Enjoy the Christian life. Enjoy the Christian life. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Can I say that again? Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Don't wait for every detail of your life to fall perfectly into place before you enjoy a day of just relishing God's goodness and relaxing in God's provision. Listen, to constantly fight the enjoyment of being a Christian is to bring the rebuke that Jesus gives in our text. Oh, you of little faith. Yes, obviously the Christian life is filled with opportunities to suffer for the Lord. That's part and parcel of following Christ. But that doesn't take away the joy of the Lord. That doesn't take away that you every single day can make a decision. Today I will enjoy being a Christian. I will, as Jesus says, let old tomorrow worry about itself. This is your reality if you're in Christ. Your reality is Psalm 1611. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Boy, I I can't believe this message fell on Thanksgiving Sunday because you want to know how to enjoy the Christian life. If you're having trouble with that, the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is grab some sort of writing implement and some sort of thing to write on and you write everything you're thankful for every time it happens all day. You'll enjoy the Christian life. I've shared with you in the past how I had a quite a privilege as a teenager. And that was the privilege of spending vast quantities of time with older, retired, former missionaries in the retirement home, especially for them. They ranged from the recently retired who lived independently in little cottages on the campus all the way to those who could barely get around in an assisted living facility, all all on the same campus. And I spent many summers there. It was a long time ago, so I don't remember a lot of their names. But many of them are burned into my memory and into my heart because even in the closing years of their lives, their lives were characterized by great kingdom passion. Burned in my memory is the couple who had adopted four children simply because they were going to evangelize the lost, and that's the way they chose to do it. And even at this closing stage of their life, they were supporting over 20 missionaries financially, living in a little bitty tiny place so that they could send most of their money to the kingdom work. I think of the man who is a printer by trade, 
He learned this skill and he set up a small print shop and he created and printed tens of thousands of gospel tracts sent to churches all over the nation who just had to ask for them. I think of one woman who never married. She was wheelchair bound and I remember visiting her room and she had no decorations on her wall because all of her walls were covered with pictures of missionaries and their families. And she could tell me about every one of them because she prayed for all of them. I think of the woman who supported financially young men who wanted to go to seminary and preach the word of God and that's how she spent her money. I think of a a groundskeeper who would stop and pray with the elderly residents when they had a need. All of them, even in the final months and years of their lives, seeking to live holy, God-honoring lives and doing all they could do to further the gospel, even when many of them were physically unable to ever leave the campus. And you know what they all had in common? They weren't anxious. None of them. They had more maladies than a medical dictionary. And yet they weren't anxious. They were content. Don't wait until you're in the last months or years of your life to get there. You know when Jesus said to do that? He said, do it now. Do it now. My prayer is that you walk in that level of contentment, that your kingdom priorities are so high, so glorious, that contentment is yours and that it's reflected in your prayer life. Our Father, we thank you for this text. How kind you are. How gracious, how merciful that the King of all the kings, the Lord of all the lords, the glorious Son of God, in His glorified form, we can't even look at Him. He's so brilliantly glorious. Came down to this earth as a man and standing outside could point to the birds reach down and pick a little flower and use those very simple things to remind us that our Heavenly Father knows that we need all these things. But His commands are clear. We are to seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness as You add all these things to us. May we as a church and may we as individuals be faithful to these tasks. And may you provide for us in such glorious ways that we just laugh and rejoice and wonder as we enjoy each day with thankful hearts as you provide. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.